then. Bingo. The numbers are moving. What I always do when I'm asking someone if we're recording, I always say, are the numbers moving? Are the num And they're moving now. All right. So um, I'm going to tell you three stories uh, that, honestly, I don't know uh, what they tell you about me. They're just three stories that I uh, tell people because they're probably the most dramatic things that have ever happened in my life, which are more interesting than me telling you, you know, about growing up at 802 Russell Street. So um, it was the day before my 17th birthday, October 4th, 1999, and I was, uh, I ran cross country at Lipscomb, uh, not because I was a good runner, but because uh, that's what my friends did. And we were wrapping up a, a, uh, a meet over at, um, at Percy Warner Park, and I don't know why we decided McDonald's was the place to go, but that's where we're going. So, of course, carpooling was not cool. You drove your own car, so everybody got in their cars, and I got in mine, an old 1986 uh, BMW 325, which is a very cool car, even though it was old. And um, we get in the car. We're going down Highway 100. I'm following a friend of mine who's on the... Uh, on the cross-country team, and uh, a van in front of them is slowing down. I don't really know what. It's four lanes anyway, so I just get over, and all of a sudden, there's a kid on his bike in front of me. I swerve, nail him with the side of my car, swerve into oncoming traffic, swerve back, flip over in the ditch, and I'm hanging from my seatbelt thinking, I've just killed a kid. I don't know what happened. So, friends are all around, and they come, in fact, some friends who uh, you all would know in the church, like Adam McClarty, I think, is the guy who got me out of the car. Not that it was, I mean, I guess it could have exploded, but it wasn't like burning or something. But he gets me out of the car. The kid, miraculously, is alive, and, but we've, we've taken him over to the side of the road. You know, ambulance shows up. Um, it was... Uh, you know, I end up sitting in the back of a police car for quite some time because they were trying to figure out whether I had done something, you know, that I should be charged for. Um, and in the end decided the kids should not have been crossing Highway 100 at, you know, dusk uh, in the middle of no intersection anyway, even though I was speeding, of course. So, um, you know, I had great, at the time, uh, this was quite... An experience. I mean, where you um, uh, a, a, a story that you you tell over and over to folks, and I the I've even used it several times. The beauty of a story is it can mean many different things depending on the setting. So you tell this in front of a bunch of you know uh, second through fifth graders, and you can make it a story about I don't know for making mistakes or so. But the next morning, uh, my mom it was my birthday. And I, was, I just felt so bad. I totaled this car, and I, you know, uh, anyway, my parents were very loving and, and were just glad that I was alive and not hurt and that I had not killed anyone. We actually went and visited him in the hospital, and he was fine. I'd love to find him sometime. don't even remember his name. But, um, no, she gave me uh, cufflinks uh, for my birthday, 
which sounds like a weird gift, but we, I was in choir, and we, had, we always wore tuxedos, and so it was kind of cool to have your own cufflinks. And I just remember saying, Mom, I just don't deserve this. I, I mean, you, I, am, I, I had such great shame in what I'd done. Anyway, and this is a story that I tell to people all the time because uh, it's, it was high drama. So a few years later, I was uh, at school in, uh, in Abilene, Texas. I went to ACU. And uh, actually, before I went to ACU, uh, you know, I had heard of a band called Stephen Speaks, uh, which has some connection to this church, but I, I didn't know it at the time. And uh, in fact, our friends, I, we did something very cheesy and decided that we would play a song to our friends, because there were two of us who were going off to Abilene. And, and Stephen Speaks had this song called The Leaving Song. And so we gathered our friends, and I played guitar. And we played uh, that we were leaving, but you're in our hearts. I don't remember how, what the words were to this song. But we loved this band, and, um, and I knew that some of the guys went to ACU. Uh, and then I met them, and they needed a drummer. Well, it turned out that I uh, had, had dabbled in the drums, uh, Growing up, I, um, my mom was a musician, uh, and my parents even met like in a musical. Music was always something that we did, um, and they tried to get me to play an honest instrument, the piano, the trombone. Uh, is there another one in there somewhere? But I uh, was, was determined to uh, get uh, to play the drums. In fact, my first drum that I ever had was a hand-me-down from the Shrigleys. I don't know why they had a snare drum, but uh, Mom, I don't know, I, I really don't know why it came from them, but that's, uh, they got me going in my drumming career. So I'm, I had played the drums in bands when we were uh, in high school, and uh, was ready for my shot with this band. So we, we start playing shows around Texas and Oklahoma. You know, I mean, it's like frat parties at Oklahoma State, where we, you know, or we're playing at Oklahoma Christian, where, you know, they pay us, I don't know why, to play in the quad of the school or something. So, um, and then one Thanksgiving, we're at home, I guess this was 2002. And um, this was before the internet was really a thing that we all were uh, connected to. And we heard through a phone call that we were very popular in the Philippines. <laughs> so this is at a time that you can't like Google this and see like, what are people saying in Manila about Stephen Speaks? <laughs> And we get a few more phone calls and realize that, indeed, we are hot stuff in Manila. Um, and we need to get there real quick to uh, have a tour, uh, the beginning of our Asian tour. So, um, so we start practicing more so we'd actually be any good. And, I mean, we kind of thought this was maybe... It like are we quitting school and gonna be a band now, and um, we still aren't really sure what we're getting into. But you know, 
we had to make a music video so they could air it on MTV Asia, which I don't know how many people watch MTV Asia, but there are a lot of people in Asia, so I assume some. <laughs> some reason we had a good, uh, or some guy we knew who shot this music video, I end up playing drums in the woods, which I, watching it 20 years later looks really stupid. But um, we take our band photos, and I'm you know down here on the front like this, and... Um, we are told that it's going to be on a billboard, which seems pretty far-fetched. But we show up uh, the next, uh, I guess it was in February of the next year, we went and for two weeks to play in the Philippines. And we show up, and we're thinking, we're going to be very disappointed in what this is, you know. But hardly that. It, totally the opposite. We show up. It's like black cars waiting for us. They take us to the nicest hotels. We go to restaurants. People hear that Steven Speaks is there, and they shut the thing down. We have autograph sessions, and they have to close the record store so we can leave out the back door. There's so many people around. It was like we were the Backstreet Boys. So I'm over here signing autographs to people, I'm not even on these recordings. I'm like a hanger-on of this band. This, they, you know, we're, they liked these songs that T.J. McLeod wrote to his girlfriend when he was 16, and then we're, you know, this huge band. We, sometime we, we, the shows were kind of madness, um, but we, there was all this other stuff. You know, we don't have a manager or anything. They're just kind of shoving us out. But they throw on some, like, jackets on us that have some cell phone company logo on it and shove us onto a TV show. They're like, you're going to play out of my league. And we're like, we don't even have any instruments. They're like, everyone lip syncs. It's fine. We go out onto the stage. The music is already playing. I mean, it's so dumb. <laughs> but um, anyway, we... Uh, I mean, we thought this was like the beginning of the rest of our lives, that we're going to be like a band. And uh, turns out we weren't. Uh, <clears throat> now, we, even at the moment, we, we knew that we would be going back to Abilene and walking across campus and no one would give a rip. And, you know, anyway. So we get back and we're kind of like, well, what are we going to do with this? Um, we kept playing some shows, and then like every band, though it didn't take very long, we broke up at, a, uh, at, a, at a, an IHOP at, in Stillwater, Oklahoma at about midnight after a show. I don't remember exactly what the issue was, but the guys who started the band, which include T.J. McLeod, which many of you know in here, just it, it, it wasn't a beautiful relationship, and so uh, they parted ways. And so... That was, that was my time as a rock star. Has it changed who I am as a person? I don't know, but it is a story that I can often tell, and, uh, and I even, as I tell it to people, I'm like, I don't, is it, did this really happen like that? Yeah, no, it did. I mean, it's a, there's some videos floating around YouTube of like fans screaming over us, and it really is, uh, I have to think, did that really happen? Um, so the other story that I often tell to people uh, happened more recently, uh, and many of you know about it in here, um, and it's when uh, my friend Justin Lipscomb died. So um, I was, uh, we, my mother had actually, so he died in the same place where my mother died, which is, is another thing that uh, 
this is literally the story that, you know, probably will kind of guide or anchor me like the rest of time. Um, so my mom had died. She had ALS, um, like our friend Wayne Reed, uh, who became my friend mostly because mom was curious how he lived. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so mom died in, uh, let's see, November of 2019. And uh, after that, dad was, I don't know, he was lost. You know, um, right after she, he, she died he, that day. I mean, he was sort of just walking around the house and, like, not sure what to do. I mean, he'd taken care of her for years. I mean, progressively, I don't think he realized how he had be- that had become everything he even did. Uh, even if he's outside working in the garden, he's kind of thinking, "Is it? do I need to go back inside yet? You know, um, so he had decided that he needed to uh, move, and um, we decided to buy his house. So... We live over uh, in Green Hills, but the house needed pl- lots of work. So uh, my wife, Mariah, is, uh, she's not going to be slow on these things. So we move in. We're making plans. We're getting ready, things to go. But I'm, I'm cheap. And so I said, you know, the one thing, listen, at least we can do the demolition, you know, of this kitchen. So um, I, had, uh, I knew that it had to be done by... I don't remember, the Monday after Thanksgiving. And so, you know, a few days before, I'm like, Justin, uh, you may not know this, but you're the one helping me demolish this kitchen. He's like, let's do it. So um, he came over that morning, and, um, and you know, I can still see him coming up the stairs, got his coffee, wearing his hoodie, and we kind of get to work. And um, anyway, we're, we're taking cabinets out. We're knocking things around. We're listening to our favorite band, Dawes. And, and um, he had had some, I knew he'd had some uh, heart concerns where he was having some chest pain for the last few months. He'd kind of gotten it checked out. But, you know, he's healthy, you know, 39 at the time, I guess he was. Um, and... Anyway, it, so it wasn't a huge deal, but then he, he was sitting down outside and, um, you know, sweating, which he was a big sweater, but he was, it was not hot, and I'm like, yeah, all right, man, he's like, he, anyway, I come back outside, he's lying down on his back, uh, put, putting his feet up, and I'm like, all right, I think you're not doing great, so I go inside to get some pillows to put under his head and get him some water, and I come back out, and, I mean, I thought he was having a seizure or something. Um, you know, it turns out it wasn't. Um, it was weird. I wasn't that scared because it seemed like it was a seizure. You're like, but I called 911, and um, I'd love, I actually sort of want to hear this phone call because I can't even imagine what I sounded like. But I call and they say, well, is he breathing? No, he's not breathing. I won't get into the specifics of it all, but, you know, we end up, you know, she coaches me through. I mean, I wish I wouldn't need a coach, but uh, doing CPR and so doing compressions as the paramedics and EMTs are, are showing up and they were there very quick. You know, they, they run up and they're at, they ask, is he, has he taken drugs? And I'm like, drugs? No. They're like, how do you know? I say, because he's my best friend. He's not on drugs. Um, 
anyway, they shocked him several times, couldn't get him back going. I didn't know it at the time. Um, I called Katie, his wife, and she's like, tell me you're joking. Tell me you're joking. And I said, I am not joking. This would be a sick joke. And we pray on the phone together, which was so powerful uh, and bizarre. Uh, and I said this at his funeral that, like, you know, it's strange to pray for a miracle, and it's all sort of suddenly coming out of you. And you're like, but to pray for a miracle suggests that you think this person is dying, that they are dead. Um, <clears throat> and what came out was just, God, raise him like you raised Lazarus. I mean, I'm just, you know, I don't know that I'd ever sort of thrown myself, you know, kind of at his feet for a miracle. Uh, he, he didn't even, I mean, there was nothing to be done he, when they showed up to the hospital. Um, he'd had a sudden cardiac arrest. And um, so that kind of uh, has become our, uh, the, the rest of life. Um, you know, he has three kids uh, who I love. Um, and love spending time with them, and who really need a dad. Um, so, you know, K Katie, his, his widow, and my wife are best friends, and they always have been, which is, uh, always have been. I mean, they have been since basically we were both married. And, um, you know, it, it's been so interesting to ha how people respond to it. They, they'll say, I hate that you had to be there. And I say, I'm so glad it was me who was there, you know, and not her, not his kids, not a stranger. Um, and, you know, I, d I don't lose sleep over it as though I, you know, failed to revive him or something, though I certainly wish it was Someone like Brandon was there instead. I actually told him that. It probably wasn't funny. Um, Justin would appreciate the joke. But, you know, I, um, you know, I, uh, it's so interesting because I think as many of you in here know who lost loved ones, like sometimes if you're the closest one to them, you may not have, you have some other baggage and the, you don't have the emotional connection even when that person's gone. I mean, Katie has, there's so many things that are going on for her. I mean, him being gone affects every day, every second of every day as they're, she's trying to raise kids and do this. And, that. and the church has been beautiful to surround her family. Um, and they have, you know, wanted for nothing. Um, and it's been beautiful and an outpouring for how much people love uh, Justin, too. Um, but for sometimes she will, you know, I'll, especially in the early couple of years, um, I mean, I really could, would talk to Justin Field. I'd be, I kind of feel like he's this cardinal who lives out in our falling apart barn, um, and I give him a hard time sometimes. But I, I, I probably with no one else, even my own mother, have I felt like I commune with this person. I kind of feel a little, um, you, you know, that there's sort of a, an ongoing dialogue. Um, and what's interesting is Katie feels none of that. Uh, 
And so sometimes I'll offer a word to her, which is really strange, uh, as, if, as though you're speaking for the dead, but is, um, you know, I, I don't know, has, has um, uh, become, you know, part of my role of, you know, she wants the kids to know what Justin was like, which she can certainly tell them, but uh, she also kind of wants to know what would Justin do, what would he want us to do with the family, and... Um, so I speak for him sometimes. But that uh, is, it, it certainly shapes a lot of, uh, of what our, my new reality is and, uh, and what we do as a, as a family. You know, our um, kids are much more aware of uh, death. Uh, you know, just the year before, my mom had died in the house with ALS. And, um, <coughs> You know, I mean, Turner was in the room with her when she died. Um, and it was, you know, as many of you know, dying is not always calm and beautiful. Um, and it wasn't. Um, and certainly with Turner, seeing that Justin, Turner's our nine-year-old, um, seeing Justin uh, knowing that your dad could die, um, Seems like a thing when you're a kid, like that doesn't really happen much, right? It's like, well, no, his best friends don't have a dad. Um, so I hope that we have not scarred the children, but um, I do think that it, it, there's some power in, you know, having kids understand that, you know, life is um, not all rainbows and unicorns, but it is also beautiful even in the, the depths of the hurt, you know? I mean... Um, some beautiful things come out of it that you don't expect. What else do you want people to know? Whatever you want to tell them. Yeah, this is just an open hour. Um, we got about six or seven more minutes. Or we can quit early. Whatever you want to do. It's well, your day. as I told you, it's your story. Well, I have not, I, there's, there's not all that much to me. Oh, there's questions. Oh, yes. Any questions? Tell us about your brother. My brother? That some of us knew. Or know. You know Grant? Is that what you're saying? Grant Farmer? Uh, no, it may be your, maybe your cousin. I'm, I'm, uh, there was a farmer fellow that, that yes. went to church here. Maybe not. He's not related. <laughs> hey, what's, his, what's his name? Uh, it's not coming to me right now. Okay. Well, I have a brother named Grant, who some of you know in the room. Uh, he's a choir conductor. Um, my music was very big in my family. Um, I'm the only one who didn't go to college on a choral scholarship. You didn't know they gave those, but they do. Uh, my sister went to Ole Miss and was, did sang, and my brother went to MTSU and then went and got his went to Westminster Choir College to get his master's and went to Indiana to get his Ph.D. and um, is a college choir conductor and, it's, and uh, is gifted. You know, um, I love watching him. He's very tall. Not as handsome, but he's handsome. And he, they may be having a baby right now. He's, uh, his, their first baby is on the way. Uh, it was due yesterday, and so they really like it to be here. Um, but he lives in Boise, Idaho now, so uh, you won't be seeing him much. But uh, anyway, that's my brother. My sister lives here in town, Emily Farmer, and she's a, a librarian. 
and uh, has been forever, is her calling. And my dad is in Idaho currently, wandering in the woods, waiting for a baby to come, uh, <laughs> trying to not interfere with the in-laws, uh, who are going to be much more demanding. Uh, where they're, uh, but, uh, you know, he knew that mom would have been there, and so he's tried to figure out how to... Uh, she was the uh, emotion, was, no, she was not, she was basically everything for our family, you know, connection to community, church, she was, I mean, you know, everyone knew mom and loved mom, and um, me included, and um, dad has spent m- most of these years trying to figure out what she would have done, and trying to do them anyway, even though he'd rather go be by himself and work in the garden and walk in the woods. So uh, he's, but he's a great granddad, uh, even without her around. So. Like I've told you this before, but uh, I was fortunate enough to teach with your mom. Yes. At Lipscomb Elementary, now Lipscomb Academy, and um, of course I knew your mom from acapella and all that. Oh yeah. You know, at Lipscomb University. But the one thing that I remember the most about your mom is that she always seemed to have a smile on her face, and she had the greatest laugh. I loved to hear Sharon laugh, and you could hear her all over the Lipscomb Elementary School because her room was right there close to the lobby, but she just had the most contagious laugh when you were around her. Yeah. And that's one of the things I remember most about her. One of the funniest things when she was like late with ALS, she she had this BiPAP thing that she was on, you know, that's like blowing air in and sucking out. And she would get so tickled sometimes. So she's like in this position, which is really horrible. She cannot move her hands, her feet. She cannot hold up her head. And she would get so tickled at things that she would start laughing. And when you laugh, you're, you're, I don't know what happens inside your face, but essentially she would, the air would just blow out her mouth and she could not talk or anything because she was so tickled and she would just have to keep it to herself because she'd try to tell us the thing that was funny. And she'd try and she'd start laughing and her air... <sighs> anyway... It was, she was, I mean, as we all know with ALS, being close to Wayne, and hers was very different than his. I mean, she, she it was kind of, it started with the feet. We thought it was neuropathy or something, and, and basically just kind of went all the way up, which in a way was a blessing because she could talk almost to the very end. Um, it was really only till like, her lung, like, she didn't have enough muscle here to, have the gas to talk that uh, really stopped her. But, um, you know, she she was not sad to be around. I mean, it might be sad to visit her and think, oh, she's in such a different state than the, you know, lively, bubbly, cheerful person as before. But you go and sit with her and talk for a few hours, and, you know, it's funny. It's not about her, and woe is her. I mean, she just uh, suffered beautifully, even though, you know, every day was a new thing that she was no longer able to do. And like that decline, I, I didn't realize for so long, I'm like, she had this like, you know, $20,000 chair that Medicare paid for for her to use and she would not use it. 
And I'm like, Mom, you've fallen down. You've, you know, you're riding in this dinky, you know, uh, hover-round thing. Uh, why don't you use the big chair where you it lays you out and it does all these things? And you realize, because once you're in that chair, you're never getting out of it. You know, the same thing with like the bathroom. It's like, Mom, you need this help. You, it, but she insisted on doing it herself until she absolutely couldn't. And Dad sometime explained to me, like, yeah, because once I start doing this for her, then she knows that's, that's it. And the, so every, you know, little ability that she lost was really um, hard on her. And yet she didn't kind of bring the mood down. I'm not saying she didn't cry over it. She uh, was, you know, it was upsetting. I mean, oh, man, my um, Louisa is our three-year-old who's a real snot. Um, I, I caught myself saying the other day, I really don't know what my mom would do with her because she's such a performer, but she's so bad. Uh, so defiant and so resistant and just everything is a battle. Uh, she wasn't that way the day she was born, which is the story. Um, but um, the day when she was born, it just killed mom. That This was in 2019 is when she was born in September. So mom died a couple months later. And she insisted on coming to the hospital, even though, you know, why? But she just had to be there. And... Uh, you know, she came into the uh, the room where we were. It wasn't immediately after. It was probably even the next day. Um, but I, I picked up Louisa and I just held it on her and, you know, put it up next to her face. I mean, she can't move her hands. She can't really talk much. Uh, and I looked at it. I'm just, there's literally tears on my mother because I'm holding Louisa. Uh, I think the hardest thing for her was knowing that she wouldn't know these grandbabies. And it doesn't even—it doesn't make me all that sad uh, that she's not here to see it or something. I mean, I, I guess I have a feeling that she sees it, is here. I mean, her ashes sit next to my desk in the basement, so um, I talk to her sometimes. Um, but I think it was just so sad for her to to know these things that are going to happen, and she'll never see, you know, Louisa, the pistol, you know, she just, <laughs> um, yeah, and it's, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I wish that she, Louisa had another grandmother around, but it's, um, she loves her Pammy also, which is uh, Mariah's mother, so she gets extra time with her. But no, I'm, I, my mother is uh, probably the person I loved most in the world, and uh, so her departure was hard, but um, I was actually so relieved when she died. I mean, as many of you can attest, it's easier for me to say that. Dad, I don't think, could say that. Um, he was lost. But for me, her decline was so... Every Sunday, I'd be down front, we're singing, and I'm, you know, we'd be talking a song about breath, or a song about, and I would just be in tears, because mom can't sing anymore. She, you know, she did all these sort of things, 
And then when she, once she was gone, it was like, okay, we don't have to um, worry about that anymore. But it was, it, was, uh, it was not that way for Deb. Well, thank you for letting me cry in front of you. And um, I hope you'll have me back when I have more stories to tell. We would love to have you back. Anytime. Thank you.